You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Avoiding Real Estate Turbulence Podcast. This is your pilot, John Lafferty, with Century 21 Town & Country. And this is your co-pilot, Tony Abate, with Ross Mortgage. And we are your real estate pilots. Our job is to be a real estate advocate and also to make sure you're educated about the buying and selling process. We'll keep you informed throughout until we get you safely closed. In a real estate transaction... <laughs> Say that ten Cut. times fast. Yeah. In a real estate transaction, there are many reasons why you can encounter turbulence. Today, we are going to talk about things on the lending side that can cause turbulence. Yeah. So, Tony, let's play. Ask the lender. Ask the lender. Don't don't throw me any ringers. <laughs> uh, so, um, I guess we'll just dive in and uh, answer these as we go, and we'll they'll yeah. just go where they go. So buyer shows up, gives you some information, gives you their credit report, Mm -hmm. and you get ready to generate that pre-approval for them Mm -hmm. because they found a house they want to buy. Or maybe the realtor has said to them, let's back up. Let's back up. I send them to you (laughs) before I take them out and show them homes because I want to make sure they're qualified. You run their credit mm-hmm. and find a recent late on their credit report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happens? Well, the good news is, is it's not a deal killer. Um, you know, and and you can kind of take it in the context of a couple couple different things. Is this a recent late uh, with somebody who has a history of a lot of derogatory credit, or is it a one time isolated incident? Uh, so it, it, a lot of it comes down to score. Most loan programs have some degree of credit score uh, uh, requirement, and and then the question becomes: To what extent does this late payment uh, impact their score? So, but uh, you know, we're we're not in a situation where, uh, for most programs, one recent late payment um, is going to out, outright kill a mortgage. Uh, explanation is is usually going to allow a situation like that to pass. One exception can be if you're working on a really really tough government loan, uh, FHA or VA, and that recent late was a mortgage. Well, then that's that's a that can be a problem. You know the um, you know when when we're looking at the tough government loans. Um, uh, you know, we're in a, we try to look at it from the standpoint of we don't want to put this person in a worse position, you know, by adding additional debt. So they're going to look very carefully, especially at a recent mortgage late um, when someone is applying for a new mortgage. Okay, so when you when you see that late, just because it's sixty days late, ninety days late, one hundred twenty days late, there's no added weight to that. It's just a late. Well, no, I would say there is added weight to that. So you bring up a good point. The later it is, um, the more impact it's going to have on the score. So it's going to it's going to potentially cause things to uh, be a little more damaging to the loan approval. And um, you know, when you think about it from a calendar standpoint, you know, there's never like an isolated ninety day late, right? <clears throat> I mean, you can't be ninety days late until you're sixty days late, and you can't be sixty days late until you're thirty days late. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you have usually a succession of things that kind of lead up to that, and that can be very telling. You know, unless there's a dispute, folks won't get that late unless there's there's something really difficult going on in their life. Okay. Next question. All right. In our lender turbulence session. <laughs> 
borrower loses his job or gets notified that they will be losing their job, i.e. the plant is closing, the mm-hmm. factory is closing in three months from now. Yeah. You as a lender find out that information. I mean, let's just take for a perfect example, the uh, the plant down on Nine Mile, and mm-hmm. it's either Van Dyke or Mound, the GM right. one that's, that's going to be closing. Mm-hmm. So you know that's going to be closing as because it's been in the news. Here it comes an application of somebody who wants to buy a house, and that's where they work. Yeah, yeah. What happens? Yeah, that's probably a loan that's not going to close, John. Uh, there's a <laughs> and there's and this is a couple Jeez. different things. You know, um, employment verifications on almost all loans now they happen at the beginning and then they happen right at the tail end. Right. And so the worst case scenario there is somebody starts the process, we get a clean employment verification, and then uh, we're within 10 days of closing, and that's the window in which we have to re-verify. The employer says, ah, you know what? We're shutting it down. It, it's, 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 we're not going to continue, and, and everyone's going to be out of a job. The loan stops at that point, and, and for a couple reasons. Number one, there's logic to that. You know, somebody has to be, you know, we have to be able to have some predictable income going forward. And then a few years back, there was actually legislation passed, um, uh, you know, under under, under um, uh, some legislation that that mandated ability to repay or ATR as we call it, and and it means just that you know we have to look at uh, and be able to show that we documented that this person genuinely has an ability to repay for an extended period of time. And so if we have knowledge that an income stream is going to stop, we can't proceed. It's as simple as that. Okay. A backup plan changes things, right? I mean, if they know, uh, hey, but my this job is is over, but here's an offer letter from the next job. Well, that's something that can change things, you know, because the change itself is not necessarily the killer part. It's the it's the uh, it's it's the it's the future view of what the income is going to be. Okay, yeah. Let's stick with this. You have a borrower. Mm-hmm going through the process, who decides to switch jobs mm-hmm. and industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What happens then? What happens then? Okay. All right. Well, you know, it, it, it happens more often than folks might think, and it, and it certainly happens more often than you and I like in the, in the course of a transaction. And you, you, you brought up a very good point. If somebody is making a job change for the better and it's with, within their industry, that's a super simple one to, uh, to say, look, fine, let's get us the new information on that new job, get us a paycheck stub or no one one's coming in, and we can move forward without missing a beat. If someone's changing industries, uh, it can be a little more difficult. Uh, and there's there's a couple things in play. You know, number one, uh, can we conclude this person is actually doing something that's going to better their their financial situation? And then number two, uh, what's the compensation looking like? Uh, if somebody is going into a salary role and maybe they were taking some night classes or some previous training for that, uh, then that's going to be fine. That's that's going to be a natural progression. And And the fact that it's salary makes it a pretty easy thing for us to calculate. The problem becomes if somebody switches and they're going into um, an hourly role where there's not a guaranteed minimum of hours or a commission type of position, um, that's something that that in most cases is going to be a stopper because when the question comes up, well, what's the future income amount? It's really hard to fill in the blank for that because it's going to be variable. So somebody in the server industry, a bartender, a waiter Mm -hmm. who switches restaurants or whatever, and they they're generating, they're showing 
X amount of tip income mm-hmm. uh, along with their standard rate mm-hmm. and and they're going to – let's say they're going from a, 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 a normal um, restaurant, bar, uh, let's say on the Woodward Corridor from a normal business type mm-hmm. to more of an upscale place. Mm-hmm. Let's say um, maybe uh, – uh, a restaurant inside of a high scale hotel, okay. like maybe the park, mm-hmm. something along those lines, um, where I think they're going to make more money sure. in tips. Yeah. What is a lender? How does a lender judge that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple things to consider there. For one thing, you know, from ten thousand feet looking down on that, uh, it is a better situation for that individual. They're in a place where you know the menu prices are higher, ergo the tip should be higher. Um, the calculation, however, looks backward at a at a two year average of of the receipt of tips. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, you know, we we could we could consider that income, but what we can't consider is the increase in income from projected amount of tips. The tricky part is uh, for a lot of these uh, employment scenarios, the tip income isn't documented. Um, for some, it is, and it shows up on their W two and and their and their pay stubs. There's a carve out for that, but not in every case. So we got to we got to be able to wrap our arms around what it is before we can use it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, let's just spitball a little bit here. <laughs> so you have a, a server, uh, you have a bartender who makes quite a bit of tip income, declares a portion of it mm-hmm. along with their salary, mm-hmm. and then puts the rest in a sock drawer. Mm-hmm. Now they need <clears throat> money for a down payment, yeah. and all of a sudden they have this $50,000 in cash mm-hmm. in their drawer. What happens there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, the, the the reality, as we know, for most loan programs, you have to be able to document the source of the assets going into a transaction. In this case, we just can't. We can we can draw a conclu- conclusion that it came from a legitimate source. The person's a server. This is a part of his income. But there's no real way to gauge well how much of that fifty thousand came from tips and how much of it came from some other endeavor. Um, when you get into the government loan, such as FHA, money saved at home can be used. Uh, it's tricky. Uh, you have to be working with somebody who just does not have a history of using banking services in general. Uh, so if they're receiving their payroll auto deposit, but then they've accumulated some of the cash, that's going to be real tough because an underwriter is going to say, you know, they're, they're in the banking world. You know, they're used to using that. Why would they keep that money in the sock drawer? Um, in other cases when, you know, they, they just don't have this checking and savings account. They've never used that type of thing. They have limited credit and we can document, okay, well, this is how much is earned and it's been over this much time. Therefore, it accumulated this much. In those cases, you can use it. It, it can be tough to do, but it can be used. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Borrower starts a new job. Mm-hmm. Same industry. Is on a ninety-day probationary period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, technically that's a problem. Um, from a practical standpoint, employers never throw that out there. Uh, they when when the employment is verified, they verify the employment just as if somebody's been there for twenty years. Um, so so we just move forward. 
In fact, I've never seen a job change situation where we had to uh, not approve the loan because of a probationary period. Now, uh, if an employer outright comes out and says, look, we're just testing this guy out. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we can't guarantee that he's going to be with us going forward. That's something that would be hard to unsee from the lending standpoint. So technically, a probationary period can be a stopper from a reality. It just never bubbles to the surface. Okay. Let's dig into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. You start a new job and let's say that your income is lower to start with Mm -hmm. because for the first 90 days, you don't qualify for health benefits. Okay. So – your salary's X, but you have to spend part of that mm-hmm. on healthcare costs because you don't qualify yet with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something they share with their lender, or is it something that they just don't bring up? Well, the good news is is that we qualify always based on gross income, and so if somebody has a large, if I'm hearing it right, if somebody has a larger payroll deduction because they're not quite yet eligible for the benefit package, and you're right, it could be 90 days, could be a year, could be whatever, depending on the company policy, uh, they will net less potentially because they're having to contribute to higher um, uh, benefit costs mm-hmm. for that health plan. Um, we look at the top line dollar. So whatever that person's gross income is, um, that's what we use for qualifying. At that time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that's, that, that's tricky because we don't live on gross income, right? We live on take-home pay. But uh, from the underwriting perspective, they consider that expense as discretionary. A person could say, I'm not going to take this benefit, so stop the payroll deduction. Um, uh, and because of that, that's why lenders use gross income instead of net income for qualifying. Let's say you have a borrower who makes a considerable amount of income mm-hmm. because they work pretty consistent overtime. Mm-hmm. Work uh, some days it's some sometimes it's seven days a week. Other times, most times it's six days a week. Yeah. Over the last let's say year and a half, mm-hmm. um, and that and that contributes substantially to their income. Let's say they work for an automotive mm-hmm. maker. Well. You know, let's just say it's it's people have been made aware that things are going to slow down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does the lender take that into account that the overtime may be going away? Yeah, yeah. So, so it and it kind of depends on how that bubbles to the surface. So, when when somebody is using overtime for qualifying, we do want to develop an average because uh, overtime is what it is. It's going to be higher sometimes and lower other times. And so, when we can develop an average over a year or two, now we have a number that we can sink our teeth into. But when we do the employment verification for somebody like this, um, the the employer does answer a question: Is the overtime likely to continue? And if they can check yes, or or more accurately, as long as they don't check no, (laughs) then we can use it. But John, we've run into that kind of situation before. You know, we've got an economic turn down, and uh, overtime is ceasing. When the employer says that, then yeah, we got to carve that income out of the calculation because it's it's going to stop. It's not going to it's not going to be there for the buyer to use. Okay, well that makes sense. You have a borrower that is currently going through a divorce. Mm How is that going to affect their qualification? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and there's some hard lines in the sand with this. So if somebody says, uh, hey, my wife and I are thinking of getting a divorce, um, you know, th- that in itself actually doesn't change anything any more than somebody is saying, 
we're thinking we might buy a car. So thinking of doing it, doing it is a whole other thing. When they cross that line and they file for divorce, now, frankly, everything is off until that divorce is settled. So we can't close a loan on them. And in fact, a title company won't close a purchase transaction on, transaction on them because of the potential for real estate-related liens. Um, once the divorce is filed, uh, everything is up in the air. Division of assets, division of liability, uh, who's going to get the marital home, what have you. And so both from our perspective and the title company's perspective, it's like we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And uh, that can be difficult because you run into that sometimes and it's an amicable divorce. But the reality is until that final decree is signed, anything could happen. Anything could happen. You know, somebody could go from no child support to $2,000 a month in child support. Or alimony, and that changes right? things. Or alimony, absolutely. With yeah. these, uh, what do they call them, silver divorces? <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had years ago, I had uh, a listing and this person – wanted to purchase it. We got all the way to just prior to clear to close. Mm-hmm. So we're talking three three and a half weeks, appraisal, inspection, mm-hmm. all the way towards the end. And then we find out that he's gone through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Everything's already been agreed to. It's the six-month cooling off period yeah. before it becomes final. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, can we just wait? A couple months mm-hmm. until it's final because his soon-to-be ex-wife refused to sign a quick claim deed, oh, man. To removing herself from any claim for that property. She yeah. refused. She said, nope, you, you're going to wait. Yeah, yeah. So he ended up – we moved on. He ended up losing the property because mm-hmm. of that. that. Yeah, that's a perfect example of why, why something can't close uh, during the beginning and the end point to that. There's just a lot of heavy-duty things that are up in the air. Um, division of assets. You know, somebody might say, "Hey, I'm going through a divorce. Here's my bank statement with fifty thousand dollars." Well, the 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 decree comes along, and guess what? You got to split that money. You don't have fifty thousand dollars anymore. You got twenty five thousand. So the, all these moving parts is what prevents uh, you know a, a home buyer from closing until after divorce is finalized. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What do we do in the case of a borrower whose rate lock? Is going to expire mm-hmm. before we close, mm-hmm. and their interest and interest rates. Let's say, unlike currently where they're lower, mm-hmm. uh, let's say that interest rates tick up a uh, quarter or half a point, mm-hmm. and they're not going to qualify anymore based on the new interest rate. Yeah, what 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 can a borrower do to keep the deal together? Sure. So, so th- that's a great question, you know, because a lot can expire for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and and you, you, you illustrate a very good perfect storm. If somebody is, is right on the cusp from a qualifying standpoint and then for whatever reason the transaction drags on and then for whatever reason interest rates are, ri- are rising, if that rate lock expires and they're potentially forced into a higher rate, that could kill the deal. Um, it, we've talked before in, in prior shows about how points can be used to drive the interest rate higher or lower, um, depending on how they're applied. And so lenders will usually offer uh, the ability to extend a rate lock for some degree of a fee. Uh, could be a little, could be a lot, and a lot of it depends on the market that, that they're in at the time. And so the way to keep the deal is to find a way to accommodate that fee, keep the interest rate the same, and extend it for long enough to get to the closing table. What's the longest rate lock somebody could jump into? Mm-hmm. 
60 day, 90 day, and it comes at a cost, doesn't it? it well, it, it, uh, the, the cost is tied to the length of time. So when we're doing what we would consider a standard rate lock, which is up to 90 days, at least in our world, there's no cost. Uh, the longer we have to guarantee the rate, um, the, the less attractive the terms become because we're tr looking further into the future as to what the market is going to look like. When you get into extended rate locks, uh, 120 days, 180 days, which might come into play with new construction, then there usually is an upfront fee for that kind of thing. Um, in our case and with most lenders' case though, once you pay that fee, you do get the, the the better of 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 the worlds that might happen. So you're locked in at a given rate. But then if the rate is lower at the time of close, you have the ability to take advantage of that. Um, we don't offer it uh, where I'm at at Ross, but uh, in the past, I've worked in places where the rate locks could be up to two years. And you think, well, why the heck would somebody need a two-year rate lock? And then uh, what is, if somebody's buying a, a unit in a high-rise condo and they haven't broken ground yet, if they want that unit on the 60th floor, it may be two years before they can close. Uh, so um, so that, that's how that works. It, you can go pretty extended as far as the timeline. For most folks, you're looking 40 to 50 days to get that mix of the best rate, rate protection, and then no cost to keep that rate locked. I've only, <laughs> only seen this happen one time where a borrower – badgered and beat up his lender so bad because interest rates were actually ticking down. Mm -hmm. So from the time that they actually submitted the application, locked in the rate, mm -hmm. the rate was probably almost a half a point lower. Yeah. And uh, he, he beat up his lender so badly that they finally lowered the rate yeah. to that half a point lower. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it cost him anything. Let's yeah. talk reality though. I mean is that, is that even feasible? Uh, it absolutely can. And and we, like most lenders, uh, kind of operate from the standpoint of 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. So let's take that scenario we're talking about. If a consumer is looking at a half percent drop in interest rates, uh, and that's substantial, uh, provided they've got the time to do so in the deal, they can pull up stakes from lender A and go seek out lender B for that lower interest rate. And of course, if that happens, lender A gets zero because they haven't closed the transaction. And they may have incurred some costs along the way too. So there's logic into at least having that conversation. We welcome that conversation in, in situations like that. Um, you know, Can we go as deep as the market is at that point in time? Um, maybe not, but we can at least give some sort of benefit to that home buyer so that it's, it's at least worthwhile for them not to have to start the process all over again. A lot of it depends on the timing. You know, are you five days into the transaction or are you five days away from closing? Yeah. Well, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you've, got a, if you've got a borrower that's doing that, I will tell you, if, uh, if that bubbles to the surface mm -hmm. that that's what's going on and I'm the listing agent and we find out about it and the mm -hmm. seller finds out about it, they're going to have a hell of a time keeping that deal yeah. together mm -hmm. because of it. Yeah. I don't blame you, as it should be, as it should be, because then then the party who's ultimately paying for it is the seller, which is not who it should be for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, we do draw a line in the sand on, on making sure that something's reasonable um, and not going to have an impact to the, to the contract. And sometimes that might mean letting that buyer walk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens in the case if you're dealing with a borrower where you, based on the interest rate and what the payment would be, it's double 
mm-hmm. from what they were paying? At what point is the threshold? Uh, this is too high for this borrower. Mm-hmm. They, they, we just can't approve the loan for this. It's double what they were paying in rent or whatever their previous mortgage payment was. This is double or mm-hmm. two, two and a half times. Where, where is it, where is that threshold or is every borrower different? Yeah, every, every borrower in every case is going to be different and um, – uh, the you know if 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 it's double but their income has changed from when they started that rent payment then it, it may not be an issue at all. Uh, when we're dealing in situations where uh, again we're right on the cusp of qualifying and uh, and there's there needs to be some reasons to either a approve the loan or b not approve the loan then 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 what we call payment shock in a situation like that can work against the buyer but uh, stepping back from that um, if the if the income is reasonable if the savings is is reasonable um, and uh, and 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 the ratios are correct as far as debt versus income the fact that the payment doubled in of itself is not going to be a stopper okay mm-hmm yeah, it can be more so if there's layers of things. Hey, this person's got bad credit; they have no money to put into the down payment. Um, you know, a lot of questionable things. Then that can, uh, you know, that can be a problem. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, this was really uh, informative. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun playing Ask the Lender and <laughs> and how to avoid maybe some turbulence in lending. Yeah, absolutely. That was a good one. Yeah, and and as we saw, the answers aren't always black and white. No. So uh, call your local professional, right? So, hey, thanks for listening to Avoiding Real Estate Turbulence. If you'd be so kind to subscribe, review, rate, we would appreciate it. Please share with your friends, family, and coworkers that they too can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.